Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. So, hey, everybody, welcome back to Business Black Belts. I'm really excited today to have Tom Varanis, who is the Chief of Staff of Innovation and People at Everywhere Wireless. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so just to start, uh, I know we do a lot of these, and the first kind of question is a layup, which is just introduce yourself a little about you and maybe a couple sentences on Everywhere Wireless just to uh, let everyone know who you are. Sure. Yeah. Hopefully it gets easier from this one. Uh, but Tom, Tom Brand is, like you said, Chief of, Chief of Staff Innovation of People at Everywhere Wireless. We are uh, Chicago's largest private internet service provider um, and uh, one of the top rated in the country. And for anyone who doesn't know, what's the difference between a public internet service provider and a private one? Just the, just the way that the company is structured. So uh, the other ones that we're going up against are the large uh, publicly traded, uh, publicly held companies. Okay, very cool. Uh, so I know when you got out of college, you obviously graduated from Northwestern. Uh, I went to Wheaton College down the street, so we played Northwestern in uh, baseball, but definitely probably a better reputation than my little Chicago suburbs school. Uh, so I guess the first question I just had for you is, uh, if you kind of zoom back to there, what was Northwestern like? Like, how did it kind of start to equip you for a business career? Sure. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting experience because back then, uh, there wasn't a business program. Um, and so it was ironic because Kellogg is you know, one of the top rated business programs in, in the world. Um, but the, the thought of, of Northwestern was that it was a, it was a liberal arts college. So I got my degree in economics, which was, I could, I could balance the debt of like of countries, but I couldn't, uh, I don't, I don't know how to read. I didn't know how to re- read a PL coming out of, of undergrad. Um, but you know, really great in terms of thinking about how do you think about uh, big questions and, and big ideas, uh, it, and and uh, it was a great experience. Uh, met a lot of really in- incredible people that you know have been formative in, in shaping my own career and my life. Uh, but but from a, a, the perspective of an entrepreneurial environment, um, it's something that I've been working with uh, you know the university for twenty years, and and they've they've kind of gotten it over the past ten years that. Uh, you know, not everyone wants to be in eye banking or consulting, which was the, the the general track after after getting an economics degree. And you said it had uh, partial studies in Slavic languages and computer science. So you did economics, but you kind of did do the gambit of liberal arts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of that was I was fortunate at my high school had a lot of AP classes and I took advantage of them. And so I was staring down early graduation and and I was like, I, I don't want to do that, but I have to pick up something else so I could stay here for a couple more years. Thankfully, my you know my parents were okay with that. So I, I looked at my courses and I had just you know, randomly taken a lot of Russian literature courses because it was like very much right brain, left brain, like economics, very analytical, very cut and dry. There's a right answer to everything. You know, Russian literature is the exact opposite, right? You read a paragraph and then you can debate it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Dostoevsky, uh, the uh, brothers Karamazov. I feel like there's yep. books that are as big about just analyzing that book. Uh, so when you came out of college, I know a lot of young people right now are really apprehensive about the economy, uh, kind of trying to figure out their place in the world. And this, and you're obviously involved in HR and people. So I'm curious at this juncture, if you sort of look back at your own life, obviously 2003-ish, there's still kind of a rocky economy coming out of the tech bubble. 
Um, and you're really involved in coaching people. So I'm curious, like, how, how do you look back at that time? Like, what was it like for you coming out? Is there anything that you'd maybe pass down to people who are in that same stage, sort of coming out of a really elite school? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing would be, um, you know, the, the, the first couple experiences you get your early 20s. Um, those are times to experiment. Those are times to try things and, and dabble and understand what you like, what don't you like. Uh, you know, for me, going out of, I actually had a startup in college, and that was pretty formative because it started my mind thinking, you know, I, I really like being my own boss. I really like the pressure and the excitement that comes with the, you know, the opportunity to create something new. Uh, and so that was always in the back of my mind. My, you know, my family is all entrepreneurial, you know, Greek entrepreneurs, kind of the, the standard, uh, standard path. You don't work for anyone else. You don't pay rent ever, you know, those, those types of things that, that were ingrained in me. Uh, and, you know, my first role out of college, I was working at a, a like a private equity company. And this was the, this is the thing I was, I was you know, on the path for. This is the thing that I was trained for. This is the thing that I thought my life was going to be. After six months, I realized I was totally wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm 21, 22. You've got no idea what the world is. You've got no idea what careers are. It looks good. It sounds good. You've, you've got the ability to make a pretty good living. Uh, and just really being honest with oneself to say, you know, this, this doesn't sit right. This isn't the thing that I'm on this planet to be doing. There's something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I do feel like you see these 18 or 20-year-olds like, I will always do this. Yeah, and they don't really yeah. know that this is all spreadsheets, no matter what industry you're in when you start. <laughs> so what was that trajectory for you? So six months in, you decide maybe this isn't for you. What came after that? So after that, uh, I, I literally, I moved home with my parents and they were you know, gracious to say, you could always come here. You'd love to have to pay rent, uh, but you got to figure, you got to figure out a job or you can't just be lounging on the couch forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started a, a small marketing agency that was a, an agency of one. This is when websites started to come online and small business owners, which is, you know, kind of my bread and butter in terms of people I knew had no idea what the web was. And, and they were so busy trying to build their businesses or keep their business going that they couldn't figure out HTML. They couldn't figure out how to code a website. Uh, and so I built this, this little company, uh, and I loved it because I was helping, you know, all sorts of, you know, small, you know, one store shops to. My biggest client was Princeton Review after after a year, and and having them uh, have the ability to put their best foot forward without having to become an expert. And that uh, you probably got a lot of like hard knocks business knowledge quickly. That's a lot different from the glossy world of PE. Yeah, yeah, totally <laughs> different things. You know, you, you learn about everything from you know customer relations, sales, right, and especially your 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 company of one. So, you know, I've got to sell, I've got to do the work. I've got to make sure that the clients they already have are happy. I've got to learn the newest technology. It was you know, every single part of a business uh, you, you have to learn in a very short amount of time. And something that I wanted to ask you is uh, I know that a lot of us, we get really worried about what other people think. Um, and so you look at where you are now at like one of the most prestigious companies in Chicago in a leadership role. And someone goes, oh, I'd want to be like Tom. Um, but they forget that even on that journey, there were kind of these rock bottom moments where you went from this prestigious PE job in Northwestern to you're on your parents' couch and you're like dabbling in websites. <laughs> so can you just talk through uh, 
I'm just curious, like the psychology of maybe how you felt about that at the time versus how you look at that as a stepping stone now, because I, maybe as an encouragement to people that feel like they haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah. The, the, the most important thing to remember is that looking back, right, I could weave the story and I could tell you how A turned into B turned into C and this opportunity led me that opportunity. Sure. I, I could claim that I knew what I was doing the whole way, right? That this whole thing was planned. In reality, it wasn't. And what I have found is is being open to that journey um, and being open to saying, okay, I, I figured out I like this, um, but I don't like this part. So my next thing is going to be a little bit different. And and then, you know, just kind of following that path. Um, again, it's it's more difficult than saying, this is the, the world that I'm going to be in. And I'm just going to be in this world. And I'm going to continue to be in PE and just, and just continue to be in that, in that environment. Versus saying, I don't really know what's next, right? And and throughout my career, I've always had people say, okay, like you've done this thing, what's next? And even now in this role, you know, I, we're, we're growing, it's really exciting. Um, you know, is this going to be my forever job for the next 40 years? Probably not. And, and so the question is, what's next after this? I, I don't know, right? And, and being open to that possibility, um, I, I think... Is again, it's, it's daunting, and it, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around saying I don't really know what the what the road forward is, but I it, it's always seemed to guide me to the right place at the right time. And so, what came after the agency? So you did that for a while, and so then you did that for like, a while. Yeah. Yep, and then Princeton Review, which was my my biggest client at the time, was starting a uh, a, a program in Chicago for. Uh, schools and, and, and students in underserved areas. And this is not the Princeton, you know, Princeton review is typically, you know, you want to go to Yale, but you really want to go to Harvard, right? It, it was, uh, you know, very high end expensive programs. And the CEO at the, at the time, the founder and CEO, John Katzman, um, had, had said, I've, I've done this thing for 20 years. Um, it's been incredibly fulfilling. Uh, and now I could take that knowledge and put in into places where um, they typically wouldn't wouldn't have access to it, um, and so he, you know, he, him and and his team said, "You're you're in Chicago. You know marketing. You know branding. You know a little bit about education. Do you want to launch this brand?" Um, and I was like, I, "I don't really know if I want to do this. You know, I'm 23, 24 at this point. I don't really know what's going on." He said, "Just just give it a shot. See what happens." And the first year, um, we had seven thousand students enroll in the program federally funded program super cool to see you know it, it wasn't about getting into college or getting into a better college this was remedial you know you're you're a, a fifth grader reading and and doing math at a second grade level let's get you up to that that uh, that fifth grade level and we saw huge gains i think it was you know, two and a half year gains within the span of like five or six months and, and so for me, that was the first time I was always service oriented in my personal life. I'm in terms of, you know, volunteering, do, doing, doing good. And this is the first time where it clicked that, you know, there was this opportunity to do good by, by communities and, and kind of service, but also do it in a for-profit manner. And, you know, this is, this is now almost common common knowledge, right? This happens all the time now, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, the idea of, of for profit for purpose was still was still new. 
Um, and, and so for me, it was a, a really key pivotal moment to say, I can run a business um, and all the, the, the great things and challenges that come with that while also providing an incredible service to people that, that, that need it. Mm-hmm. And that feels like that was maybe a time before that was as common as it is now. Yeah, for sure. Was, for sure. Yeah. Um, and do, how much of that do you think is genuine? I'm just curious. Like, it felt like when you were doing that, it was really a real heart piece. How much of the, like, oh, we give a pair of socks to Africa every time, like, do you think is just a marketing tactic? That's tough. I, mean, I, I, I haven't, I haven't really thought of it. I, I, I hope that most people's hearts are in the right place. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's almost becoming a necessary part of a, of a marketing or product launch where you have to do something that does that. Um, I was just uh, talking with another CEO about, um, Patagonia and kind of the, the, the place they've been. And that to me is the, is the model of, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, do what you're going to say, right? Everyone else be damned. This is what I believe in. And, and that that string has been true through the entire history of that company. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's no one that's going to be able to say that, that Patagonia, its executive teams, uh, their, their founder and leader are vacillating on that or trying to use that as a, as a smoke screen to what actually they're, they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, they donate the entire company. Is it's like, insane. It's, yeah. It's, it's so it's, impressive because yeah. it's no ego. I feel like the no. ego of some of these people like, uh, I mean, there's lots of them, like these huge billionaires, like they would never give away their whole company because they're so obsessed with themselves. Yeah. And this guy's like, let's help the world. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you go do Princeton Review. It's a huge success. And then the story continues. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that. And then I had the opportunity to open uh, a couple of their markets um, and you know, did that for, did that program for about two, three years, two, three cycles. Um, and, and throughout that time, I'm still in my mid to late twenties at this point. Um, and so I, you know, luckily had access to the leadership at Princeton Review, like John Katzman, Mark Chernis, um, Beth Milner, some of these folks that are, uh, you know, I looked at them like these, like, you know, these, these adults, right. And we were all, we were all kind of young, you know, I was much younger, but they had this ability to say, listen, I trust you. I, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to help you, but I'm also going to throw you in the crucible. Um, and so the, the following couple of years, I had the chance to like, just have random opportunities where they would throw me into a, a, a situation and wanted to see how I would react to it and how it could help the company. So I, I ran their call center in Houston for almost two years, right? Like what's a, what's a guy that has zero experience in call center doing running a national call center for a publicly traded company, like nothing, like I shouldn't be doing that. Uh, so it was like a really great experience of, um, you know, just getting thrown into different experiences, having to learn really quickly, um, being totally analytical because you don't know any other way. I can't make any other decisions unless I know why I'm making a decision. Uh, and so that was, again, kind of, I would say, you know, a, a, my master's degree in having to really understand how to make quick decisions, um, mm-hmm. not knowing a specific you know, line of business or area of business. And that, and that kind of makes me wonder, do, do you feel like the days of being a specialist are sort of numbered in the sense of it feels like more and more like decision making, people leadership, our general skills, communication, and then even the, I look at like what I do every day, it's like there's like 
it ranges from like high end like AI trying to beat spam filters to writing copy like David Ogilvie to like like it's so mosaic and I feel like that's a lot of us. So do you, how do you see that as someone who's also an HR leader? Yeah, I, again, like the HR leader thing, like I, and I tell my team this, and it's, it's a little bit crazy. I'm about 110 employees, and it's like I don't know HR, right? Like I'm not a stayed true 20 year veteran of HR. But what I can do is think about every one of these issues in a much different way, right? So when it comes to a 401k plan or a benefits plan or whatever it is, I have zero preconceived knowledge. And that is a lot of, in a lot of ways, really, really great because I don't know what the standard is. I don't know what other companies would do. And I, I frankly don't, I don't really care. It's, it's more of saying, I want to do this for my people right now. What should that be? Um, and so it's, I, I, I actually wrote a blog post a little while ago about, you know, the end, the end of the, of the generalist, because what I've seen is like, everyone is like, so focused on, you know, it's not even like, I'm going to do digital marketing. It's like, I'm going to do this like very specific, small thing within digital marketing. Um, and, and it's, it's great, right. For, for me as a, you know, as, as a very much a generalist the ability for me to say, okay, I want to do this specific thing. I could find someone that just does that thing and, and have them on my team or hire them to supplement, you know, that need. Um, but you know, I, I think there's a little bit of danger when we start losing folks that can be generalists. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I totally agree. Cause these problems you get faced with are so varied like if you don't have the ability to pick up a 401k plan and read it yeah like it's hard to make a good decision because you're just so at the mercy of other people who a lot of times you don't have the experience enough to trust yep that it's almost like you said it's not even generalist you just have to be generalist and specialist yeah it's like you have to be both able to go deep and wide um all right so so you are then kind of jumping around, you're doing this mosaic of roles. Uh, and I know you've done a lot of, it sounds like you started to advise companies at this time. You started to kind of have a sense of like, you're pretty good at business in general. So you start to get some interesting side work. And then did that continued for a while or what sort of came next? Yeah, that continued for a while. And then um, there was a company that, that bought Princeton Review. Um, they will they'll go unnamed because um, they are, they're a big company and I respect the heck out of what they do. But uh, you know, they came in and they saw a 30 year old with no MBA, right. Mm-hmm. That had no specific line of work that he was good at. I, I'm not good at anything, right. I, I've got no general, I have no specific trick that I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, what, what is this person doing running the call center, running online program, you know, building the first online tutoring program. Um, and the, the entrepreneurial fervor that, that, had captured the Princeton Review for 20 years came, I, I, I want to say like to a grinding halt hmm. where it was, you know, we're going to install specialists. We're going to install people that have done this and, and, you know, it's, it's a great strategy to have, but you know, it became pretty clear that the, the person that I am wouldn't work in, in that type of system. Um, and so I had the opportunity to came back to Chicago and, uh, and took a, you know, probably almost a 10 year journey in, in kind of the talent space in urban education. Um, it started with buying a, a executive search company that tried to change the way that um, boards would search for their superintendents um, and, and not have it just be 
um, you know, a, a carousel of old white men um, and really think about what a board needed and what a school needed so that their leader could be the right leader for them. So we had an executive search company. Uh, we then also had a consulting company that, that would help with turnaround. So large school districts, uh, very complex, a lot of you know, very difficult issues to, to work through. And so school districts would hire us to, to look at a specific issue or say, we don't even know what the issue is, help us find it, the, the, the issue. Um, and then through those two experiences, we realized that one of the issues that was facing urban education uh, was a, a lack of, of uh, training, not so much education training, but organizational training. So, uh, you know, a lot of school leaders you know, five, 10 years ago uh, were really great in their subject matter, right? So they're a, a really great, you know, social studies teacher that then becomes, uh, you know, a department head and that becomes central office, uh, central office and then became a superintendent. And no one along the way was, was telling them, okay, now you are at the head of a multi-million dollar, in some cases, multi-billion dollar organization with thousands of employees, unions, uh, you know, uh, you know, mayors and, and other stakeholders, community, all these things. It's, it's in one of the most complex positions to have. And no one had, had given them the, the training to be able to address all those issues. Um, and so we had created, uh, we, we had some, some development uh, work done and created kind of an executive MBA for school, for school leaders. Um, and so we you know, ran those three companies for, for nearly a decade, um, mm -hmm. you know, have, have some battle scars to show for it, but um, also feel like, you know, that was the, the pinnacle of being able to do, um, you know, for profit and for purpose together. It really isn't an interesting case study about not judging a book by its cover. Well, there's some reason that Princeton Review's leadership valued you. And you think about how much that entrepreneurial spirit's needed in a large company and they get confused. Why do these entrepreneurial people leave? Yeah. It's like, well, you cut their legs out from under them. Um, and then to see how much you flourish with that much creativity and impact, um, probably better not to be at a huge American holding company, even though I don't know which one it is. So we can say that safely, <laughs> but, um, and then you obviously end up at, uh, at your current station. Yep. Uh, and it sounds like you focused a little bit more on, uh, like a mix. So you went from sort of both innovation, like just general R and D and sort of corporate strategy, and then also the people component. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I came in, so between the education company and, and everywhere wireless, I had started to do executive coaching and absolutely loved it. Like the ability to, to work with, you know, typically younger, you know, startup companies or growing companies, um, to, to help their leadership define what the issues are and help them, um, you know, work towards solutions. I loved it. It was great. It was, it was a really fulfilling time, but I realized I was like, I was like a grandparent, right? Like I would go in, play with the kids, teach them some lessons, come back next week and realize they forgot everything that I, I had worked with them the week before. Uh, and so, yeah, and I wasn't growing a team. I wasn't really doing as the, you know, advice counsel. Um, it was, it was phenomenal. It's a really great time. And I still do it to this day. Like I still have, uh, you know, a coaching practice that I, I continue to, to work with. Uh, but you know, at the core, I love people, right? I, I love taking young talent because this is what, you know, I'm paying it, paying it forward a little bit. 
this is this is how I got to where I am was that there was some guy that pointed me out in the crowd and said, let's give this guy a shot and let's support him and 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 make sure that he's got what he needs to succeed. Uh, at the same time, you know, you have to do that in a growing company. And I I I was missing that. I was, you know, it's one of those things that I didn't realize was something core to me that I loved doing until I didn't have it anymore. Uh, and so I had the, the opportunity to meet Keegan Bonebreak, who's the, the founder of Everywhere Wireless. Um, and he, you know, the company was growing at an insane clip at that time and still is. Um, and you know, looking at you know, how do I help this founder take this company that's got an incredible premise, a great product, uh, a great team, and get to the point where we could grow at a at a at an even faster pace that we could, uh, you know, prepare the company for external investment, um, all those things. And so, you know, it, 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 at that for three years, you know, I, I don't even know what my job titles were. But it was just it was you know me and him and the rest of the team all running together, um, trying to you know build this thing in a sustainable uh, sustainable way. Yeah, it's a, it's a really inspiring story of just kind of like entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, like mosaic of talent. Like great schools matter, but they're not. So my final question for you is: if you had to distill it, if if you sort of thought about your life as a movie, your career as a movie, and there was really one principle that your life sort of has embodied or would teach someone else, what would it be? That's a great question. That's a really great question. I think it, I think it's just care and maybe even, maybe even dare I say love, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when I say that, I, I mean the, the people you're working with or the people that are working for you. Um, the work that you're doing, um, you know, care about it, care about your people, like love your people. And that, you know, it, it's, it's not something you hear a lot in business and it's, it is a little bit difficult, but like, I love my people, right? I've got 110 people and I am totally okay and open with saying that I care and love for each of them, right? And, and they feel that way back and that's super important. And the same way with any work that comes across uh, my desk is like, I need to care and love that work and that task, no matter what it is. If it's, you know, finding a replacement toilet for the second floor or finding the right investment partner to, to invest in the company for the long term, like to me, those are, those are almost, I mean, this is totally tongue in cheek. Those are almost as important, right? That, that every single thing you do, you should care and love about deeply. Yeah, it's a really great principle. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. If anyone wants to reach out to Tom, feel free to find him on uh, LinkedIn. And yeah, we look forward to having you again on in the future. And best of luck at Everywhere Wireless as you guys keep pushing. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks. Thanks.